This morning I want to introduce a very special speaker. He's, he's a good friend of our church. He's spoken at City Light when we we're meeting at the art chair. He's spoken for us numerous times. He's a good friend of myself and the church. His name is Alex, Pastor Alex Wallington. He is a Reformed University Fellowship pastor. Reformed University Fellowship, or RUF, is our denomination's on-campus ministry. He is a minister, a RUF minister at USC. He's doing tremendous work over there. Uh, Pastor Alex, he lives in Pasadena with his wife, Becky. They have three children, and he has a love for LA, a love for God's people here. And we are always thrilled and delighted uh, to have him speak for, for us. And this morning, he's going to give us a message from 1 Corinthians 15. It's called The Resolution of Heaven. So we want to welcome Alex during this time. Morning, friends at City of Light. Uh, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 together, and I'm going to read this text for us. The Apostle Paul records this at the end of chapter 15 in verse 42. I'll pick it up. The text says this So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and is as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've been born of the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, your labor, is not in vain. This is God's Word. I want to tell you a story about my friend. Uh, his name is Michael Gregory, who works for this ministry called RUF. Uh, over in St. Louis. Uh, when he was in college, he was attending this church uh, that had a program that connected college students to families, and this family approached him and began to build a relationship with him and invited him over for lunch the next week. Uh, about the middle of the week, he got a call from the mom that said, uh, we'd like to confirm you for lunch on Sunday, and I just have to tell you, our children are ecstatic that you're coming. They cannot wait to meet you. And as a 20-year-old, Michael thought, well, this is interesting, but hey, I'm 20 and I love people to uh, be excited to know me and 
um, think I'm a big deal, so I'll let it you know, pass. So on Sunday, he shows up at their house uh, after church to go to lunch, and he knocks on the door, and he hears the kids running and yelling, He's here! He's here! He's here! And they come running to the door. And when the door is open, the kids look up at him and go, Who are you? And he said, Well, I'm Michael Gordon. And they went, Oh. And they walked away dejected. And he was rather confused. And so he walks in and says hello. And the mom says, I have to apologize to you. Uh, the reason that they're so disappointed is because uh, when we said you were coming over, we told them and they th- who you were, and they thought we said Michael Jordan is coming over for dinner, not Michael Gordon. Now, here, here's why I tell you this story, because I think the average Christian, uh, and especially if you're skeptical and don't know what you really think about Christianity, thinks heaven is at best a boring consolation, uh, that it's better than hell, but it's definitely not something uh, to build our hope and excitement on and to bank everything that's coming on. But what the early church thought about heaven is that what was promised and what would be given is so powerful. It is so transformative. It has the power to do, as Paul says at the end of this text, uh, to keep you steadfast, uh, to keep you immovable, to keep you always abounding. That is, what heaven gives us is something that is so overwhelming that you cannot begin to look at both your life here now and what is to come in any of the same way. Now, some of you maybe have read that text with me and thought, uh, how is he talking about heaven? Because all I read was talking about the resurrection of the body. Well, the reason is because the early church, when they talked about heaven, the only category that they had to talk about heaven was the resurrection of the body that they knew and saw in Jesus. So that the way that they thought about heaven was not going up to heaven and being like these uh, undetectable spirits, but what they thought was what happened in Jesus, that's what heaven's going to be like. Uh, To the point where N.T. Wright talks about it this way. He says, The early church's hope is remarkably consistent and uniform. It's centered on resurrection rather than simply life after death. In fact, the early church almost never talked about going up to heaven when one died. And if they did, they taught that heaven was a temporary stop on the way to the new heavens and the new earth. And see, what Paul gives us here are, let's say this, three promises about the coming of the new heavens and the new earth and what we have to look forward to and what we can grab a hold of, that if you will, um, will begin to make you uh, immovable and steadfast, both in this season and in any season that this world can throw at you. So so let's learn and walk away with these these three things about heaven uh, that will hopefully transform what we're doing now and life to come. And that's one, the finality of heaven, uh, two, the power of heaven, And three, the resolution of heaven. Okay, so first, the finality of heaven. Uh, Did you notice what it says uh, in verse 54 when Paul quotes, uh, or excuse me, before he quotes this hymn, he says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. What he's talking about there is uh, when the new heavens and the new earth actually come to be, that there will be a historical moment when all is transformed, and when that happens, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
Now, what he says here is that there will be a moment when uh, death, as if it was this personified person who sort of owned most of our experience, uh, will one day fully be swallowed up in the victory of this new heavens and new earth. And, and when he says death, uh, he's using death here as a sort of a summation of like the, pen, the penultimate overarching category of all the things that you and I were not meant for. Uh, the Apostle John talks about it this way in Revelation 21 when he says the coming of the new heavens and new earth will bring about an experience where there will be no more tears and there will be no more sadness and there will be no more pain. See, when somebody says to you, uh, death is just a natural part of life as like a platitude of trying to help you cope with something hard and sad that you've gone through. Look, this saying uh, this text is saying, no, it's not. Uh, that, that death is not a natural part of life. And what heaven will do is it will put a finality on our miserable experience with death and everything that death is connected to that we were never meant to taste and that we should never go on tasting ever and ever again. And there will be a mom moment where the resurrection puts a period on the sentence of death and says it shall never exist again. It will be swallowed up. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, has a, a sermon on the believer's future experience. And he says, here's what will happen to the Christian uh, at death. And excuse me, here's what will happen to death with the Christian in heaven. He says, heaven will put an end to all the believer's sins. Heaven will put an end to all the believer's temptations. Heaven will put an end to all the believer's fears. Heaven will dry up a believer's tears. Heaven will put an end to a believer's troubles. Uh, heaven will put an end to a believer's cares. Uh, heaven will put an end to all our natural imperfections. That is, uh, everything uh, that you loathe and struggle to embrace about yourself, uh, both in your body and in your personality and in your psyche and in your emotions, all of those imperfections. It says, heaven will put a final end to our distaste and frustration with that. Death will put an end to the imperfections of grace. That is our inability to even receive love, our inability to both give love uh, where it has no merit on ourselves. that will end. And then heaven will put an end to our weary pilgrimage. See, like one of the things I, I think is happening in our society right now is that we're discovering uh, what the last taboo is in American culture because it's no longer sexuality. I mean, have you, have you noticed this? There is nothing in the sexual revolution that we feel uncomfortable talking about, writing about, putting in movies, putting in songs, uh, putting on TV shows, blogging about, putting on our social media. None of that is uncomfortable to us. But when we begin to talk about death, and we begin to talk about all of death's friends and cousins, like sadness and loneliness and pain and fear. It is an immediate silence and uncomfortable nature. Because we don't know what to do with this. It is the last taboo. And heaven says there will be a finality and there will be an end to that where it will never, ever exist again. And, and let me just try to say this as a pastor to you. For those of you who taste more sadness and pain and heartache in this life than you do joy and smiles, your experience in those things is not a lack of faith, nor is it even a lack of piety. 
But you must never believe in your sadness and in pain that there is no end to this and that there will, be no, there will not be a finality to that kind of experience because that is a thought, that is a lack of faith, and that is a lack of piety because what heaven promises you is that you one day are more sure to rise out of your graves than you are in your beds in your morning, in the morning. And everything that you experience that you hate in this life, there will be a final end to that. And this text swears on the resurrection of Jesus that all the things that we loathe and hurt and ache about, it will end. And we can grab a hold of that. Secondly, though, there's another promise to hold on to, and that's the power of heaven. Uh, Look back with, with me in the text when it says this in verse 42. Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. There is also a spiritual body. So what Paul is doing here is he's comparing and contrasting the life here and the life to come. He says the life here, uh, it is perishable, it is in dishonor, and it is full of weakness. But he says the life to come is imperishable, it is full of honor, and it is full of power. And from the immediate eye, what it seems like Paul is doing is that he's comparing and contrasting our life here uh, that's marked by death, that's marked by pain, that's marked by sadness, and contrasting that with the life to come in the resurrection in the new heavens and new earth and saying that's going to be radically different. But look, what he is saying is is actually way more powerful than that. It's actually way more profound than that because he's not just contrasting our life experience now with what is to come. It's even more profound because look what he says in verse 45. He says, Thus uh, uh, is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, if you look in your Bible uh, or on your phone, there should be a footnote there where it says, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And you'll notice what he's doing there is that he's quoting Genesis 2. Now, here's why that's a big deal. Because uh, Genesis 2, if you go back and read the Genesis narrative, is before uh, the fall happens, is before sin happens, and is actually at the very beginning of the creation narrative of where we find Adam. And so what we learn here, and here's the cash value, what Paul is comparing and contrasting is not the world that we live in that's full of all the tainted sin and death and pain with the world that will be filled with glory and honor. He's actually comparing the original creation that had no pain, that had no sadness, that had none of the things that taint and, and mark our hard lives now with the world to come. He is saying that what is to come is going to be so overwhelming, is going to be so full of honor, is going to be so full of power, is going to be so full of glory that the world that was originally made, that didn't even have anything wrong with it, that will be described as dishonor, as described as weakness, and as described as perishable. And what he's telling us is that look, what he- the power of heaven to come is not just going to give us back what we lost, It's going to give us something that we've never, ever had before. Um, Do do any of you know what a uh, a mantis shrimp is? Um, It's a very peculiar uh, animal that we actually don't uh, 
talk about very much. But one of the unique things about a, a mantis shrimp is we're told uh, that it has uh, 16 types of color receptive cones. A butterfly we, we know has five and human beings have three. And what that means is that we as human beings see about 15% of the beauty in all of this world that a mantis shrimp sees. Now, th think about uh, the most majestic thing that you have seen uh, in the creation here just in Southern California, some of the sunsets, uh, some of the trees, some of the animals, some of the flowers. Uh, and if you've ever been overtaken by anything like that, it, it's possible that you literally only saw 15% of that. Now, if this text is true, and we're told that what we're going to get is so overwhelming, so beautiful, so majestic that even the perfect world that we started with, it sounds like honor and, and, uh, and perishable in weakness. Look, that means that you and I in, in heaven, we, we might, we have five senses now, we might have a hundred. We, we, we might be able to see things and experience things and taste things and smell things that we didn't even know were possible. I mean, if this is true, it, it, do you really think that at the moment of heaven you're going to be unleashed to a less power than a mantis shrimp has here in its ability to taste and see the creation? Look, we don't even know what's coming. And what the power of heaven is promising us right now is that what's coming is so unbelievable, is so powerful that you can't even describe it, but it tells you and it promises you to do this now. You're missing out on nothing in this life. Nothing with the coming of heaven. In fact, the only thing that you can miss out on in this life is if you don't live every day in the freedom and joy like the best is yet to come. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, the German pastor, who was sentenced to death for standing up against the Nazi regime, uh, on his way to his execution, uh, was heard saying, death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. That it's going to unleash us into something so majestic, so beautiful, that we, in a way, will finally be free. Look, you can only believe that and sing that and say that with confidence if you know the power of heaven. And the promises we're given here are the finality of heaven, the power of heaven, uh, but thirdly, and maybe most profoundly, the resolution of heaven. That is, heaven, it won't just end our pain. It, it will turn our pain in such a way that we will one day sing about the things that were painful here. Look what Paul says again in verse 55 going forward. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. And he's quoting a hymn here. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is astonishing what Paul is saying here. Because he says, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he uses the word Lord there, uh, in Paul's writings, especially in the Corinthian letters, uh, he only talks about the Lord as the crucified and resurrected Lord. So what he's saying here is that Jesus' death and his resurrection gives Christians a victory that we are able to sing about. 
Now, that seems normal to us now because we sing praise songs and hymns to us, but you have to enter in the moment to get the profound nature of what Paul's talking about. Because when Jesus died on the cross, nobody sat there and watched him hang there and thought, you know what, this is amazing. Uh, God is forgiving all of our sins and he is atoning for everything the world has broken and done wrong. And uh, they were, no one was sitting around singing, lift high the cross. Uh, no one thought that was a profound moment. In fact, we're told at the end of the Gospel of Luke, they all walked away sad. They all walked away dejected. They thought they had put their eggs in the wrong basket and they thought, this is the end. But what happened was three days later, he walked out of the grave. And it taught the early church this, that the thing that made them utterly dejected, completely sad, thought they had utterly failed and put everything in the wrong basket, it didn't, that didn't just uh, get fixed, it got turned upside down on its head so that the sad day of Friday became this wonderful thing that they began to sing about. And what Paul is telling us here is, friends, that will be the story of the universe that the sad things that happen in our culture right now that have happened around us, that have happened uh, in the past hundred years, those won't just stop, but we will one day look at those things and realize, hey, we, we will sing about them. We, we will re re almost rejoice in the same way that we rejoice that Jesus died because what will happen is those things will end up being the things that sink us ultimately into the love of God, into the ultimate power of heaven, and to taste it in a way and be given something that we never would have had if those things itself had not happened in themselves. And it's almost unspeakable to begin to realize that, listen, everything that death wanted to throw at us, listen, it, it won't just lose but it will get angry and frustrated realizing that it contributed to a more beautiful victory that Jesus gives us than it even thought was possible. Do you remember uh, at the end of uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows uh, when Harry and uh, Voldemort are dueling back and forth and they begin yelling at one another and they realizing that this is sort of the final battle and Voldemort's getting angry because he thought Harry was dead and they start uh, joeing back and forth with one another, and uh, they start talking about Snape, and uh, Voldemort starts talking about Dumbledore's plan, and just how it failed, and how he captured Snape, and how all of that uh, has been going to his plan, and then Harry just says this, he says, Dumbledore's plan hasn't backfired on me, it's backfired on you. And what begins to happen is that the next line J.K. Rowling records is she says, Voldemort's hand began to tremble. And what was so unnerving for Voldemort in that moment is he began to realize, I'm not just going to lose, but everything I set out to do, all of my plans, all the people I tried to manipulate, all it did was contribute to Dumbledore's plan altogether. Oh, friends, like, I, I want you to see this. The worst things that have happened in your life, what the promise of heaven gives you right here in its resolution is not just an end to it, but to say one day in the new heavens and new earth, thousands of years from now, 
you won't just look back and say, thank goodness that's over. You, will, you might write a song about it and sing and rejoice and laugh over the reality because that very thing itself brought about the deeper richness of heaven than you could have ever had in itself. And nobody put it better than Dostoevsky in his book, the Brothers Karamazov, when he said, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all the hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. Listen, if you wonder if this faith is true, don't you want the world to end that way? That, that death and all of its pain and all of the sadness tangled up in it, it doesn't just end, but it gets turned up on its head in such a way that we will be able to resolve it and smile at it because that's what heaven promises to resolve for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. If I can apply all of this uh, in one succinct way for us in this, season, in this season, look, the power of heaven encourages, to, encourages us to just walk away with hope. And I think what it means to live with hope is that you live every day like the best is yet to come. Listen, live your life like the sadness will end like you're not missing out on anything in this world because something coming is so much greater than you could have imagined in this world and that everything that's happened to you that's unjust, that is broken, that is hurtful, listen, it will be resolved. And that should free us, listen, to live like the best is yet to come because like C.S. Lewis says, this is only the title and cover page. So don't think that this is the best part of the book but live like the real story is coming and let the power of heaven allow you to stand firm, to be steadfast, to be unmovable, and to give yourselves to the work of the Lord because none of it will be in vain. Let me pray that the Holy Spirit would do that for us. Lord, um, finding hope and resolve and encouragement in this season uh, just feels... Uh, hard to grasp upon. But these promises are unbelievable. And if, if we could uh, grab a hold of them, Lord, we become, could become a people uh, in this city that's prepared to love it as soon as we're allowed in ways that we maybe have never done before. Uh, would you begin preparing this city, Lord Jesus, for things that we uh, want to give it? Uh, may we be a droplet of the power and the resolution and the finality of heaven to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.